Business is simple. It's just not easy. We focus on three things to help you run and grow your business more easily. Talent, sales, and how to scale. This is the Talent, Sales, and Scale Show. Hey everyone, Brian Whittington with this episode of the Talent, Sales, and Scale Show. We have Jamie Shanks is coming to us. He's the CEO of Pipeline Signal and um, Sales for Hire. He also wrote a book called Spear, Spear Selling, right? Yep, Spear Selling, absolutely. Right, so it's a, more of an account-based uh, account management, account sales type book. So definitely check that out. Um, but today's topic is not going to be about intent data. Today's topic is not going to be about lead generation, but rather this new idea that he has, he's even started a new company called Pipeline Signals, where he's talking about relationship signals. So that's a curious one. So that's where we're going to be going today. So welcome to the show, Jamie. Brian, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess question number one is, why in the world should we listen to you about relational signals? I mean, who even, yeah, okay. So you coined the phrase uh, social selling, or, uh, arguably, um, but why should we listen to you about relationship signals? I mean, what in the world is it? So what I'll do is I'll pose a couple minute backstory so you get the flavor of the why you should listen. I think that's the important piece. I like so it. I started a consulting company that failed. And that consulting company, I didn't eat my own dog food, didn't build a proper sales pipeline. And so I was nearly bankrupt. And in 2011, 2012 timeline, I would sit in my spare bedroom, which was global head office, <laughs> at three in the morning, struggling to figure out how do I take my strengths of business development, which were at that time, phone, email, rinse, repeat, and I would sit and stare at my laptop. Now, for whatever reason, the only social media platform I was a member of at that time was LinkedIn, and it was open. And I would sit and stare at it, and I would think, how do I reverse engineer this tool, which has been primarily a recruiting tool at that time, to be able to glean insights to capture intelligence, which is the left side of your brain, and then on the right side of your brain, engage people that I don't know. I would experiment, reverse engineer, and I would book a meeting overnight. And then I would show people the next day what I had done, and I'd book another meeting. And it was the very first moment I started to recognize that you could use social media platforms for business development pipeline creation. Long of the short is I won a customer in Toronto, Canada, and I made a deal with the chief revenue officer because he wasn't going to pay me. He said, I know that this thing LinkedIn can create enormous value, but I'm kind of skeptical. So I made him a deal in a statement of work that said, I will help you create, I think at the time it was 20 or 30, and I ended up booking 31 SQLs with his sales team. I would train his sales team. And if they hit a certain threshold, he would be my reference for the next year or two. Yeah. And no matter who called, it could be a competitor, it could be, it could be his direct competitor. He had to tell the story. And so I had this one free paid customer in a way. So long and the short, I won the deal. We had a great training engagement. They created 31 sales qualified leads in 60 days. But then I didn't know what to do with it. So <laughs> long and the short is kind of like the movie Back to the Future. Doc Brown hits his head off the side of the toilet and he discovers the flux capacitor, which he puts in the time machine. 
I did the same sort of thing. What I did was I took a sheet of paper and I drew the logo of my customer that I'd won. They're called Vision Critical, market research firm. I drew the logo in the center of a sheet of paper and I circled it. And then I stared at it and I asked a fundamental question. Who cares about that story? And as I pondered this idea, I started drawing spiderwebs coming off of it. And I came to recognize that the only people that care about that story are people that used to work there, people that work there today that are connected to other people, their competitors, their vendors. So it's what we call the sphere of influence. Mm-hmm. This single idea, the sphere of influence, as in story, people only care about stories one degree away from themselves, was the basis and genesis of the very first piece of my curriculum, social selling mastery. So that's a very long-winded backstory to tell you that that was where the genesis began. I grew the world's largest social selling training curriculum, scaled to five or 600 of the biggest brands in the world, Microsoft, Oracle, Intel, and 250,000 sellers around the world were certified on our training program. And it was through watching these sellers book thousands and thousands and thousands of meetings that we saw them do the same process. They would map who leaves my customers and goes into either another customer, a prospective named account or white space. So companies I didn't even know existed, but now I have an advocate in that business. So that was the ultimate long winded story of telling you the why you should listen to my experience of relationship mapping for the creation of opportunities or uh, upselling and cross-selling your existing customers. Now, LinkedIn had experimented with this for a while, didn't they? Where they had that that mapping that it almost looked like a heat map. It, did, that came and did that disappear? LinkedIn is filled with experimental functions. LinkedIn is a software platform. It is a network and an ecosystem. And actually one of the best ways it was ever described to me, um, the ex-chief revenue officer of LinkedIn, akin it to the Amazon rainforest. And in the Amazon rainforest, you have all kinds of jungle creatures. If you introduce too many hunters, sellers, into the ecosystem, it spoils the environment. So they've always been very cognizant of the fact that you need executives to use it, you need new hires, and you also need salespeople, but there can't be too many of any. So you'll notice that features will come and go, but in fact, They'll never be so overtly amazing to show you how to do these things. And that's where training companies or service-based businesses come and develop around that ecosystem. Well, so interesting, because I mean, everybody realizes now the power of LinkedIn to engage. However, from what I understand, and you'll know this better than I, Jamie, that um, for the most part, something like 85% of all LinkedIn users are on LinkedIn for less than 15 minutes in a month. Um, and most of the people on there, all the, the marketing and, and sales folks, and then the, those seeking for, for new jobs. Um, is that accurate still or? Correct. Yeah. So utilization of the typical executive is very minute. That in fact, so there's a whole puzzle piece of how to create brand recognition, reputation management, and how to get people's attention on LinkedIn. The reason that I created Uh, pipeline signals, relationship mining and monitoring was very simple that I was watching sellers spend a disproportionate amount of their time and week on what we'll call a $5 an hour task. 
So you pay your sales professionals to drive you outcomes. I call those $500 an hour value creators. But unfortunately, to get to the outcome you're trying to derive, you have to do these actions and activities that are rote and mechanical, the left side of your brain. So how do we buy back our seller's time? How do we get them the information in LinkedIn that is critical to account selection and account prioritization, which is who's new, who's been promoted, who's left, how are they connected to your customers or competitors? And we route that intelligence into their CRM so that the seller doesn't have to spend their time mining intelligence, they can focus on engagement. So they get these rapid alerts that says, John Smith just left our customer. They were at this customer from this year to this year. Now they're in this role. Here's here are the next four steps you should take. That just alleviated your high priced expense of account executives or even your BDR SDR team from doing something you know is important yet is costing you a lot of opportunity cost of customer engagement. So let me let me push back here a little bit and at the risk of making you angry. Um, oh, hey, I love a good argument. <laughs> yeah, so here, here, here's the question is um, most people don't even know to do these. And what I found a lot of times is if you introduce a technology into a system or process or to help them in a system or process that they should already be doing, but they're not doing it, that technology just helps them to do a worse job or a bad job more quickly. So you said something in there that kind of piques my my curiosity that makes, maybe makes me think that this could be a little bit different, but how would your technology prevent that from happening? If they should be doing it anyway, but they're not, why in the world would they do what they're not doing now with technology to assist them? I think what you said is incredibly true and intuitive. And I think that every buyer has to go through their why decision-making framework, their objective framework. As a head of revenue operations, sales operations, or a chief revenue officer, you have to reverse engineer from what does good look like for us? And if you're not already creating opportunities by having conversations with repeat offenders, past customers who keep moving from company to company, and when they get to their new company, they bring you in as a service provider, solution provider. If that's not happening all the time, and you keep hearing it around your office, like, yeah, we just won this deal, and yeah, they were a past customer, then it doesn't matter what our solution is. To your point, you will give them a use case to a problem they don't think actually exists. Right. The same sort of technology. So if you look at sales intelligence, you've got another category called buying intent. If your organization doesn't believe that inbound leads through people that Google certain words, download key assets is important to you, who checks out your website, if that's not important to you and you haven't recognized that that's a problem, that you're not capturing it with objectivity and complete like global alignment of every account and what's happening, why would you buy buying intent? You'd be wasting your money. So the first decision any key, any key decision maker in sales and marketing need to ask is, how do we create opportunities today? And how do we create a repeatable process to get more yield per seller against that, uh, that way of doing so? And are there technology, people process technology that can accelerate that process? And that's all that we've done. So we focus on those that understand that as a use case. 
Now, with with what you're talking about here, I, I, I'm going to ask you in a second to go into the role. What should people really be doing, right? So I'll ask you in a second to do that. It seems like this would be geared towards an organization that has several customers, been around a long time, maybe even a, a decent sized sales team to be able to, to, you know, we used to call it, where are they now, right? They used to work with you, but where are they now? You engage them and, and pick up that conversation again. So it seems like what you've, you've done, been able to do is identify and automate that instead of you searching on, on sales navigator or something like that, your automation tool says, hey, look, alert, alert. It's like a, um, a Google Google alert, right? That, hey, this person's moved now. Is that kind of the, the idea? Yeah. So let's discuss the two. There's two um, use case job functions that this serves and then the type of customer. That's a really important question. Two use cases. Use case number one, you have a net new business development challenge. So you're, you're not getting enough at-bats with your BDRs, SDRs, and AEs. So you need- Which to is everyone, by the way. Yeah, which seems to be everybody, but uh, you need to fuel them with more objective conversations. So, and remember, account selection and account prioritization is where so many sellers waste their time. So you're giving them at-bats with compelling events that are very objective. These are people that came from your customers. That's use case one. Use case number two, your customer success team. Especially if you're a technology company, the most valuable uh, metric you could possibly have is called net retention revenue or gross retention revenue. And so from there, the protection of your core customer for enterprise value is even greater and more important than acquiring new customers. So how do we protect what we have and even upsell and cross-sell our customers? So monitoring all of your customers for who goes into these accounts gets promoted or leaves because you're tracking the priority change that's happening within a business. So those are the two use cases. Now to your second point, what is the best fit and finish, the best type of customer? It actually isn't um, correlated to the number of sellers that they have. It's more correlated to the size of their total addressable market. Because if you, as an example, are a new startup and you have five customers, then the data set of people leaving that small total addressable market and moving into other customers is pretty small. So the only other subset of data you'll get is net new job changes. You pick a TAM, who's getting promoted, who's going in, who's leaving, but they're not connected to your customers. So the best type of company are ones that have a pretty strong cohort of customers. You can have just one or two sellers engaging these signals. So the size of your sales org is not that important. It's more about how big is the market we're going after? And is there enough data to keep people really focused in on this as a series of sales plays? Yeah, so it seems like um, really what you're suggesting here is, and that's a funny thing, right? There's nothing new under the sun. It's just now putting process and automation to something that we should be doing anyway. Correct. And now, so the, 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 they would call it trigger events, right? So what's the trigger event? So what you're suggesting is this is going to find the trigger event of somebody moving, getting promoted within, and then being able to contact them. Now, let's go to the, the naysayers out there. Yeah. No one's on LinkedIn. It's a real challenge. Um, 
you know, people are doing automation on it. You know, you, you, you send out an, an, a LinkedIn request and then the next second you get just blown up by the, the sales pitch that ensues. So how do you see in that environment where people are starting to really recoil off of that automation and prospecting through LinkedIn, how do you see this being a differentiator or a, a, a different way of approaching to still use LinkedIn for business development? So important is to first separate church and state and left and right, and, and left and right brain. The left side of our brain needs to collect sales intelligence to make informed decisions. The right side of our brain needs to engage. So what we're doing is tackling the whole left side of the brain. We are collecting intelligence to help you make an informed decisions. That gets routed into your CRM, Salesforce, HubSpot, Microsoft, doesn't matter what it is. Now you as the seller get to choose the medium of communication that is best for you to engage that customer, phone, email, smoke signals, LinkedIn, Twitter. So our process ends at the delivery of a, I'm going to date myself, a Glengarry Glen Ross pink sheet lead. <laughs> I'm handing you that. You get to choose how you engage. So we'll separate the engagement of link on LinkedIn as completely mutually exclusive of the signal itself. But from my sales training days, yes, of course, LinkedIn, like any medium, gets muddier and muddier by the week, month, and year, as has email, as has cold calls. And so there is a series of tips, tricks, and tactics that every seller needs to develop to stand out from the noise. Um, and a lot of it actually starts with first developing a brand and a reputation online so that when you are messaging, your messaging is landing because you have, you appear trustworthy as somebody's reviewing your message. But again, we'll separate the two um, for the time being. Yeah. Well, let's go, let's take it away from the technology side and let's go to the tactical, right? If you had suggested that this, this takes the, the things that the seller should be doing on a rope basis. Why don't we unpack that a little bit? What are the things that people should be doing that they're not? And then we'll get into when is it the time to maybe tackle um, moving into an automation? Sure. So there's a great study done by Gartner that has shown for the last 10 years, the percentage of sellers that have been making quota. And I think every CRO has seen it's been moving in the wrong direction. Right. Well, a couple of years ago, there had been a firm for years measuring the percentage of sellers that were not making their quota. It's called Topo. And they were asking themselves why. So they would dive into the 50% cohort that wasn't making quota. And they were analyzing what they were doing wrong. And what Topo identified was that 83.4% of sellers not making their quota, you could chalk it up to poor time management. So let's unpack what's inside poor time management. The single greatest time suck vampire, whatever you want to call it, I believe is account selection and account prioritization. And what that means is that sellers go into their CRM or they build a list off of the Inc. 500 or Inc. 5000 and they call it up, down, and sideways with no regard for objective decisions as to why they're calling this account today, not tomorrow, or account A versus account B. And so when if a seller could back up and recognize, if there's 100 accounts in my total addressable market, 
why should I account call account 13 today and account 27 tomorrow? Well, you need sales intelligence to help fuel a trigger, a compelling event, a reason why I'm going to focus in on that account. And so that's the part. If we can buy back sellers time and have them focus on calling accounts in order of operations of potential need. And that's where buying intent software came involved. That's why we're kind of moving towards this relationship mapping, trying to evangelize this topic. There's a third category called product usage. Imagine knowing who's using adjacent softwares or connectors to things that you sell that are a great fit. All of a sudden, you're getting a better picture as to which accounts you should focus in on. So that's the that, that rote mechanical decision making we're trying to buy back. Yeah, because um, what's curious now, if you look at whether it's uh, Zoom Info or Apollo or some of these others, they're starting to give you a tech stack that the people are using so you can you, you can identify that. You're also seeing intent data and the feedback that I'm getting from the field, it sounds like yours is a little bit different, but some of the intent data that I'm getting is people are already hands raised and they're, they're just then getting attacked um, because they're on the intent data. And sometimes it's a little bit too late. So it's the idea is how can we get in front of that before they, they get found out by everyone. And then yours is bringing in that relationship side of are you connected to them because it's so noisy out there from sequences and power dialers and parallel dialers and everything else. I mean, if you look at HubSpot's study where they, they showed from the beginning of COVID through to today, the amount of outreach, both in emails oh, and telephone is just insane. And the reply rate is way down. So yeah, then it gets into how do you actually have the conversations, which I think your relationship side could definitely help with that. Um, so if you take all of that into account, then the question becomes, okay, how do we stand out in the noise? And my sense is from what you're just describing here, Jamie, is that we have to take much like a client of mine, they're doing um, third-party data, right? And I didn't understand what third-party data was until they were good enough to explain it to me, but it's taking all this disparate information out there and pulling it all together. And it seems like yours is one of those disparate systems that needs to pull that together. Go ahead. And we are a piece to a puzzle. And uh, third-party data, it was anyone in sales intelligence is all collecting third-party data. And all that we're doing is synthesizing it to make it prescriptive for people. And I think it's really important for any sales leader to recognize that there is no one magic pill. Yeah. There are pieces to a story that's happening to an account. So I'm drinking out of my Yeti mug here. So Yeti is a fast growing company out of Austin. And inside that company there, and this is the buying intense incredible, but here's some of the challenges with it. Marketing teams get super over indexed on it. So inside Yeti, there might be a person in engineering that is really interested in the topic. They Google a keyword, they download one ebook. It's the same problem that's happened for the last 20 years with marketing automation. Companies will set their parameters of what they'll call buying intent. They'll open the floodgates to the point where if like, if this person looks at our webpage, oh my God, <laughs> they're a lead. They're a hot lead. They're a hot lead. So it gets routed and the sellers go bananas. And then the marketing team, because they made the investment in buying intent, train the sellers 
to say if anything pops up on our six cents, you know, six QAs, you have to call the crap out of it. Yeah. And so what's happening is then the sellers get a little disenfranchised because like oh, I made a hundred dials or I sent a hundred emails and these people aren't getting back to us. That's a piece to a story. I mean, it, that was a buying committee is seven to 10 people inside Yeti. Yeah. You just had one person who looked up one keyword. You've got all you did is like, if you're fishing, you just had a nibble, but there's other parts to the story. There's you know, what are the other read their form 10 K what are their strategic initiatives? What products do they use and connect to and are of interest to who inside Yeti is a advocate? or a competitive threat or brand new to their role and looking for change. None of these data sets are the answer. They are just a piece to the story. Yeah. And then the other question I had for you is ICP, right? Because what you're talking about is really that market identification. And if you have a larger TAM, let's let's pretend that you don't have um, a finite, like you were saying, 100 hundred accounts within your organization, right? So that's going to be an enterprise, nice revenue, land and expand kind of opportunity. Let's talk about the the, the SMB space where there's a lot of of folks. What, if any, help would this do for identifying that ICP? Because that goes into a lot of the market study or account planning, because I'm finding that less and less people that I'm talking to really know what their true ICP is uh, and they, they have it entirely too broad. And so the message is off whenever you're talking to them, they're not adapting that message to the, the role responsibility, right? What really impacts that person. So I'm seeing that being off. Uh, can this, is what you're suggesting helping with that? Or is that still outside of the yeah. purview of this? Uh, here's how we're seeing SMB use this. So an S, if you're targeting SMB, either your TAM is astronomically large, thousands and thousands of accounts, or you probably haven't honed into the perfect ideal customer profile. This reminds me of how I grew Sales for Life. You have a general sense of geography, verticals that you want to target. Let's say it's all the United States and there's 10 verticals that we like. Um, so that that TAM is massive. What this will allow you to do is look for white space opportunities. Most likely your CRM is not complete. It doesn't have all 10 verticals, every account in them. It doesn't exist yet. So think of it as a game of spider webs. You win one customer. From that one customer, there are people that will leave and go to accounts. There will be people connected to those people from your customer base to other accounts. One customer can lead you to three, can lead you to seven, can lead you. And so all you're doing is following breadcrumbs of people jumping from company to company, yet you're not as rigid as a, you know, as a a rep at Salesforce, who's given a geographic territory of two neighborhoods inside Toronto, Canada, and they can only call financial services from companies of this size of this size. Like, you know, that's a very mature business. An SMB, now all of a sudden you can jump and just follow advocates. Advocates are can be more flexible and malleable than 
you know, I, I only came from one vertical, this can't work in another. No, no, they, they, they can envision using successes from their past and bring it into their new businesses. Just follow the people. That's how it's typically been done. Now, do you, because back whenever you coined the phrase social selling, the idea was take your network and get introduced into other, other like-minded. Um, are you still recommending that pathway? Because my guess is that's how you reverse a, a lot of uh, reverse 100%. engineering. Okay. 100%. And so can you tie in this relationship mapping, this relationship insights to um, not only those that are moving or getting advanced up, but how to tap like-minded, like individuals? Is there any, any of that intelligence in this? One of the best, and this is an exercise that any seller can do themselves. So imagine I pulled you up on LinkedIn right now. If I click, if I click on your connections, it will open up your connections, which most likely is in the thousands. The biggest challenge is I can't determine what's called relationship strength or high social proximity. So like, who do you, which companies do you really know? Except there's a bit of a tip or a backdoor. If you click on company, on the companies button. So I'm now inside only your connections. Mm -hmm. If you click the companies button, what will happen is 10 companies will pop up. What LinkedIn will do is reverse engineer all your social connections and stack rank them by the number of connections you have in specific accounts. What you do is highlight only the top five. Those top five are probably where you used to work, your spouse works, your best friend works, uh, the company in the office next door that you guys do joint drinks on Thursday nights, um, your greatest customer or vendor. So if you highlight only those companies and then dive into the teammates there, those are the companies that Brian knows best. Mm -hmm. And so it's only those companies you should focus in on Brian making you an introduction or a recommendation in because he has 14 connections there. And you can clearly see that three years ago, he used to work there. That's one of those kind of tips and back doors that will help you use and this is a great tip for customer success you dive into the relationships of your customer and you figure out the top three companies that each one of your day-to-day -day power users and advocates actually know and you leverage them to make the introduction once a company is identified or once a person is identified then it lays out a couple of steps that a person should take so once that's identified what are the steps that one should take yeah. So uh, let's assume that this key stakeholder moved from your happy customer into a prospect. The first step it's going to ask you to do is to review the key account plan or review this company and contact details in your CRM and identify the the sales professional and or the customer success representative inside your own company that worked with that past customer. Okay. So now, because what you're trying to gather, the almost like the SWOT analysis, the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats of working with that past account. So let's visualize this again. I'm targeting Yeti as my prospect. What I noticed was that a key stakeholder at Mont Blanc just left that company and went into Yeti. So step number one is the seller. Talk to the CSM that did the Yeti deal 
or the seller and the CSM did the Yeti deal. Find out what happened in that account. Case studies, best practices. Uh, did we have a great experience? So you can leverage that in your engagement with that new teammate over at Yeti. Because now that teammate in Yeti, they may have moved in the last 90 days, but you've got to kind of refresh them on the project. That's step number one. Step number two, you need to socially surround that new key stakeholder at Yeti. That means connect with them on LinkedIn. Review what they've been sharing on LinkedIn. Is there a comment you can lay, uh, lay down uh, to some of their engagement? Do you want like a post? Uh, do they have a Twitter account? Connect with them on Twitter. So now what you're doing is you are, you are pre-warming up the relationship socially. It's called socially surrounding for that key contact. Then number three, we have a resource library of playbooks or best practice messaging for any company that doesn't already have a pre-built set of cadences and sequences. Go into our library, choose something that works for you. Step number four, engage this customer using your engagement cadence or sequence. And then because it's a task, mark down, was this relevant? Was this not relevant? Put a note in as to how can we improve that this signal was great for you or not? So those are kind of the, the steps on a high level of what they need to do. Got it. Now, and I can hear the hear a couple of things um, from a sales leadership perspective. Jamie, this takes too much time. I just need them pounding the phone, sending out the emails, doing more more work. This slows down the this slows everything down. Speak to that person. Yes. Yeah, so I and this is comes back to fit and finish. There are customers, there are companies that still believe 100 dials a day, 100 touches a day, zero research uh, is an effective strategy. I don't know that we're always the best and nor is any of this sales intelligence that great. If all that you're going to do is glean that there was buying intent or glean that there was a job change and then just hit cadence send you know, forget leveraging the intelligence that was given to you. You have to ask yourself, why are you even buying that intelligence? Because you're not really leveraging it. We're focused on companies that have a real account-based ABM, ABX, ABSD strategy. And uh, it's important for them to slow down for all of a few minutes to hyper-contextualize that conversation because their cost of customer acquisition warrants focus because that could be a million dollar deal or six figure, seven figure, eight figure deal. Um, I guess that's how I would define it. If you are flying this intelligence into connect and sell and just like rapid calls and there's, there's no rhyme or reason, what did you really glean from this intelligence other than the fact, yeah, it said job change. But did you use any of that intelligence? And I think that, yes, you'll have an uptick a little bit in your conversions, but that's you're not looking for a little uptick. You're looking for massive, uh, you know, inflexual changes in your business that shows like, oh my God, when I talk to my past customers, I am really opening doors. Yeah. So it really gets to your go-to-market strategy. So what I found was, in most organizations that try to set up 
a sales development department, if you will, right? So SDR, BDR into an AE, um, however they want to set that up. What I found is for that go-to-market to work, um, at least in the old days, it's going to probably ratchet up a little bit with the increases in, in labor costs right now, but it was 7,000 profit per sale or $20,000 profit per lifetime value. What would you say the go-to-market strategy, what would the, the profit or the, the standard ticket size for this type of um, sales methodology to work, would you say? Any sense? Yeah, it's typically five, six, seven, eight, nine figure deals. Like there, these... These are not e-commerce, our type of customer who are spending this time, money, and energy to penetrate accounts. They're not selling e-commerce widgets. They're selling complex B2B solutions. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So in selling those complex B2B solutions, and you're, let's talk a little bit about technology stack. So we're talking about intent data. We're talking about yours. Um, how much, so for, for example, there's other, others out there right now that are sending snail mail or some other pieces. Yeah, Sendoso, that kind of stuff. Yeah, Sendoso, because it would seem like the biggest challenge right now, and one could argue this has always been the challenge, is getting somebody to engage because it's so noisy out there. So my sense is really what you're saying is you got to use everything. If you're going after um, six, seven, seven figure deals, um, did you say down to a five figure deal? Like, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, my, my platform pipeline signals is an ACV of 24,000 USD a year. So $2,000 a month, it's a monthly yeah. recurring bill. So yeah, I'm happy. My cost to customer acquisition warrants me backing up, slowing down, focus on my past customers to achieve that. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you're a um, manufacturer, you're tighter on, on your margin. So your number is going to have to be up. So do your math on that. Um, but this approach, I think, is really going to be needed as we're going through. I mean, I looked at it um, having a conversation. Are you familiar with White Rabbit at all? Rob Turley, White Rabbit? I've, I've heard of the account or the of the company. I just haven't kind of dove into it. Yeah, so it's basically a suggestion. Their hypothesis is that AI can help help you to better identify your ICP, right? And so it, it, what I'm thinking is there's this third-party data for marketing, but there's really going to be third-party data of ICP, relationship, intent. I mean, it seems like they're, we're getting into a complexity now to be able to do your job effectively to just get break through the noise of all of the things going out there. Um, I, I don't know your thoughts on that. Yeah. And, and so there's blunt force trauma of just pounding <laughs> the phones and the volume. Uh, there's always going to be a place for there's a mathematical equation of the more touches, the more conversations, as long as your conversion rates stay relatively the same, you just want to, amp up the yield do you want to amp up the touches but i do believe that we're we're going to enter a world if you don't mind i'll go on a quick tiny tangent please okay so i've been an entrepreneur my whole life i think covid completely changed how cfos see the world so pre-covid you had very expensive account executives all around the world plane trains and automobiles March 2020 here in North America, you had all of them pour into inside sellers. You took them off the road. Two years later, every CFO is looking at their books going, wow, 
we kept our sales either flat or some many of us increased sales yet our cost of customer acquisition and our cost of goods sold was so much better than it was before because we can sell everything virtual and remote i believe like industrial manufacturing goes through these revolutions of looking for optimization yield and so forth i believe that in going forward 20 the year 2022 to the year 2020 2030 there is going to be a massive investment in how to optimize our sellers and they're not going to be necessarily less sellers but we're constantly going to be looking at ways of helping them take away tasks that are not as valuable save them time and those there's going to be services and solutions and technology that help all with this so that's where i believe this is all going and so yes there's always going to be companies that just ramp up headcount to attack the problem i need more sales i will throw more bodies at it but the great resignation and the cost of acquiring and onboarding a seller is so great. I'm hiring right now. Talent is so difficult to acquire that I think teams are going to look at this problem completely differently and really focus in on, I need to make sure that when my sellers are working, they are way more optimized. They are focusing a lot more than they were before because my seller isn't going to ram 100 dials a day every day that is a law of diminishing returns so i'm going to get them laser focusing and i believe that companies are going to be much more uh pinpointed as to who they target than just like blasting everywhere that's my theory of where it's all going well you and i have been around the block long enough that we could remember that if you you picked up the phone you're going to get in touch with one in five people one in four people right hundred percent. That was when I started cold calling. It was, I rem, I used to have a sheet in front of me, made X number of dials a day. I would try to have 12, when I was in commercial real estate, I was hundred percent commission, 12 conversations with presidents and CFOs about their leases. 12 would get me one or two meetings every day. Yeah. If I just, but that, that blunt force trauma is not as effective as it used to be. Well, and you can't get one in four, one in five anymore. That one in four, one in five, that's 20, 25% connection rate. Now you're down to a two and a half to three and a half percent if you're lucky. I don't answer my mobile phone. Like, yeah, ever. you're correct. And so that that is the amount of work and volume continues to ramp up because I can remember distinctly um, in 2009, I was one in four. 2011, I was one in five, and it just keeps ratcheting down, ratcheting down since then. And, and um, now since hybrid and remote, you don't have the office lines anymore. You don't have the direct lines, so you have to get them on their cell phones. So getting that data, and then you just pointed out, Jamie, that I don't even pick up the phone. If I don't recognize the number, I'm not picking up the phone. So then how do you get in touch with that person, um, which now it's all of these different variable pieces and parts to it. So it really interesting. Um, well, shoot, I could talk about this all day. So let's start maybe rapid firing a little bit. Um, what would you say the biggest challenge of people trying to maneuver from blunt force trauma, like you said, to more of this uh, social selling targeted 
relational relationship signal um, methodology, what would you say the biggest challenge that you would see people running into and in, in trying to convert to this? I think that it's important that you go through an exercise that we call will. What does ideal look like? Take your last 25 or 50 customers, reverse engineer, how did you either acquire them or what were the major influencers and attribution to the acquisition strategy of getting them on board? If you noticed that they come in inbounds because they're Googling keywords, or if they were past customers or they were brand new to their job, focus whatever are, you know, is the historical pattern and focus intently on developing a process to get more of that, whatever that is. I promise you that if you did this exercise, your last 25 or 50 customers didn't come in just because of pounding the phone. There was a trigger, there was a compelling event that happened to people in that buying committee. And so reverse engineer it. And it's most likely one of three things, technology integrations with product usage, buying intent or relationships. So then once you believe that to be true, because the data is in front of you, then set a course, a course for figuring out how do I slowly maneuver towards getting more of that intelligence to my sellers so we can get more of it. It's the only way I think a company is going to believe it. If you just say that, yeah, I'm going to make a switch, you won't. You have to empirically see that this is the route to market that makes sense for you. Yeah, so um, taking that time to really dig down and nothing new under the sun, right? We should be doing this anyway. We should be going back and interviewing our customers. What was life before we started working with us? What was the straw that broke the camel, the proverbial camel back that made you actually engage with us or have this conversation? And, and what have you found that... Um, we brought to the table that kind of surprises you that you knew that you were going to get X, but now you're getting Y and Z as well. So, I mean, just going back and having those customer conversations are critical. And it'll blow your mind how many of them were either came from your customers or one of the key stakeholders in that buying committee just before they called you was brand new to their job. And they started making massive changes, priority changes in that job function. And then all of a sudden, that's when they went from why should I change to how to who. And you'll notice that on LinkedIn, it happened. Interesting. And I would think there would be somewhere about a 60 to maybe 120 day window to really start to engage with people. There is a statistic that still needs to be fleshed out if it's real, that in the first 100 days on the job, a key stakeholder will either physically deploy or mentally have deployed up to 70% of the remitted budget for the year. Why? They get in the door, they figure out where the washroom is, they meet their team, and all of a sudden they recognize I'm on a clock and in the next quarter, I have to have a plan of impact. People process technology. And they start, and they're the most malleable at this time to learning new things to start deploying the capital to their initiatives. Interesting. So that would be a huge trigger point. Um, and hey, is there anything out there that would help us find these? <laughs> yeah. <exactly. laughs> All right. Now, uh, best business hack uh, that you want to give for us, uh, suggestion on hiring the right talent to be able to do this. Um, 
a selling tactic that you might suggest to be able to leverage this most or a way to scale the business? Because you've done that a couple of times. So pick one of those, uh, a suggestion on selling, ta- uh, hiring sales talent or um, scaling. I would say that for, uh, for your listeners, the biggest hack that helped me uh, was every time we want a customer, we physically grabbed a sheet of paper and drew their logo on a sheet of paper and reverse engineered it. We overtly concentrated on sphere of influencing. And what that forced was customer success to get involved as part of the new business conversation. So customer success would look at their own customers and realize the people that work there are going to get us three to four more customers. Let's work together with new sales to figure out who knows who and who's going where and who's already gone out of that account to get us more. Yeah, and I love that because you just reinforced a belief. So hopefully I'm not um, jumping onto this with cognitive bias, but it seems like you had a written out process and now you threw technology to it. So that's that's another key takeaway from that. I'm a big believer in process before platform. Yeah, because <laughs> I screwed that up too many times. So yeah, absolutely. Um, now, how about resources that you might might recommend? So books, podcasts, different guides that we should we should tag um, tackle so we can learn some of this stuff. For me, um, you know, interesting. I as an entrepreneur, for years I would listen to sales and marketing podcasts, but now as a CEO who's building a you know a built to sell, a built to scale software business. I am really trying to learn from a different peer group, but I find Saster is a great hybrid between, you know, learning as an entrepreneur of how I build a scaled software business, but at the same time, they bring on a lot of tactical guests that do functional deep dives in marketing and sales and customer success. So if you're in the technology space, that it's a great resource. Yeah, and I would even argue that even if you're not in the technology space, those principles, principles work no matter the, yeah. the company, right? High growth companies are usually the first to test out anything. Yeah, out of necessity. <laughs> nice. All right. Now, um, what trends, because you talked about this a little bit, but what do you see the trends do you see the future holding uh, specifically for sales and revenue growth? You know, what's what's making you go, oh my gosh, and scaring you a little bit, or oh, I can't wait, this is going to be awesome. What, what do you see coming down the pike? I think there'll be a massive downstream effect of the way as PNLs, as two years of CFOs looking at PNLs, I think the way that sales organizations are designed and the way they go to market is going to be completely different. I think CFOs are, I believe that the first time in my lifetime, the answering of hiring more headcount, just like throwing bodies at open territories is not going to be the answer. Any CFO with a calculator is going to figure out that is not the route to market. Can't find them, can't attract them. It's way too expensive. And so we're going to have to find w- different ways to yield, to uh, creating yield. This is interesting. So a quick aside here, that's going to go in the face of every VP of sale, CRO. Last 20 sales. years. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and they're going to, their job, they're, they're a 17-month, 18-month churn right now because so many are missing the mark. I just saw um, 54% of all, sales people miss their their targets in less than one in four um, sales team actually hit quota in a year. So they're on a short rope anyway. And then you're going to, you as the CFO are going to come to me, the sales genius that's, you know, done this and I've built this. How do you see that going? 
I believe that there'll be a complete refresh of many CROs because most CROs, the only capital they have to deploy is deployed in headcount. So a lot of them don't sit on big budgets like a marketer does, like a, C a chief marketing officer can deploy in so many different ways. Primarily, a chief revenue officer deploys it in headcount. And unfortunately, the only play that they've ever known for, like I'm 43 years old, like my whole generation only ever knew to throw bodies at a problem. Yeah. And I believe that's going to change because you recognized that your outside sellers don't need to be outside. They can be inside now. There's a lot of this product-led growth e-commerization happening to business. And we can do a lot more with a lot less from a Zoom environment, from a digital environment. Um, I, I believe there's going to be a change in the way that we look at the cost of acquiring businesses and serving customers. Yeah, because the, the trend that I've been seeing is, yes, you throw labor at it, headcount. Then once that didn't work, they started throwing technology at it. And now we're in the mess that we are now that we can't, you can't even break through the noise. So it seems like we've gone through those two iterations. And now you're suggesting is just a, a completely different go-to-market strategy. Um, and it's really whoever is going to be to identify and, and, and walk that path uh, is going to win. Yeah, it's just going to, as I believe we're also have a recession looming. It's <laughs> just looking differently at the cost at which you're doing business. There's always going to be venture backed companies that you can throw a hundred gajillion dollars at the problem. But for the vast majority of companies, they're going to have to be a way smarter on how they acquire customers and service customers um, and get a lot more productivity out of the people they have. Correct. So it's, it goes back to revenue operations again. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, hey, I, I really enjoyed our time here, Jamie. Thanks so much. So hey, who should reach out to you? How should they do it? And why should people reach out to you? Uh, company PipelineSignals.com. Reach out to me. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Jamie Shanks. I think I'm the only Jamie Shanks. I don't even know. <laughs> um, but connect with me and happy to talk about pipeline creation and relationship signals and sales intelligence. Nice. Well, hey, thanks so very much. So out of this, there's a lot of, lot of different ideas there. Take the four steps, re re review your key accounts, have a plan in there. Um, check out Spear Selling by, by Jamie as well to get some good strategic account management process because that's the key to profitability. Um, do the social selling, surround them, resource library, go, and that's on your website there, Jamie? Uh, yeah, so the resource library is part of becoming a customer, but you'll notice at both Sales for Life and Pipeline Signals, we're always sharing best practices. Got it. So follow them on there. And then last step number four was, I don't think you put it in these this language, but execute. So don't just learn for learning's sake, learn for yeah. execution's sake. Go do something, would you? Kiss a kid, save a life, help communities grow through entrepreneurship. Thanks, everyone. I really appreciate it.